Hello, everybody, and welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Lewis Keynes, and, and the reason that we're here, our why, is that we're all about being better. We're committed to helping fellow educators, coaches, and those working in education to be infinite learners. We want to encourage all people working in the sector to be open to ideas and suggestions on how to develop practice and to help us support others along the way to becoming better human beings. I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Alan Dunstan. Yeah, thank you, Lewis. Really looking forward to, to diving deeper into understanding how leaders with an infinite mindset translate this across to their teams. And we want to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or on your coaching courses. We're looking for real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. And as ever, we're, uh, we're recording live and, and we're learning as we go through. Um, if you have any feedback, whether that's things on we can improve or, or something that you've enjoyed, about our podcast, um, let us know. Get in touch via social media. Twitter is, is usually the one that we use the most. So let's introduce today's guest, Al. Yeah, thanks, Lewis. Privileged to welcome Simon McMenemy onto the show. Um, get your pens and papers ready. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom, as always, when we talk to Simon. So, Simon, can you start us off and just tell us a little bit about your journey for us, please? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having us on, guys. I do appreciate it. Um, my journey is probably not as uh, not as straightforward as, as uh, many other coaches. Uh, I was kind of plucked from relative obscurity of uh, Worthing Town in what was it, step seven in the UK, and ended up going straight from being an assistant manager in non-league football to the youngest national team head coach in the world with the Philippines. And um, that came about out of nothing. Talking to an old player, he talked me up, and, and a conversation later, and I'm on a plane to Manila. And unfortunately, when given the opportunity, um, we went straight into a major competition, which we'd never qualified for before, which we then qualified for and ended up finding ourselves in the semi-final of that, of that FIFA ratified competition, which is a, a big deal in this part of the world, um, the, the Suzuki Cup. That then led on. We did well against uh, Vietnam. We, we beat them, probably the, the biggest result in, uh, in the Philippines history, to beat the defending champions of the Suzuki Cup in Hanoi in front of 40,000 Vietnamese. Um, I then had a club from Vietnam come after me once I'd finished with the national team and ended up on a contract out there. Um, that was a roller coaster of a ride and that then led me into Indonesia where I spent two years in Indonesia. Uh, I left Indonesia thinking I was going to sign a contract in Europe, but that fell through unfortunately and ended up finding myself on the beautiful islands of the Maldives working for the champions of the Maldives. was only there three months, difficult place to work and got offered to come back to the Philippines and work in club football there. And really took that opportunity to come back and kind of prove myself as a club coach as well as a national team coach. I'd done it once and I, I really needed to come back and prove it at club level that it wasn't a fluke. So um, enjoyed my time there, did two years, finished my contract uh, with, uh, with club team in the Philippines and then was offered the opportunity to go back to Indonesia. And I've been sacked twice in Indonesia before, difficult place to work, a huge amount of politics and, uh, and just, you know, one last throw at the dice, needed to go back and prove myself and Picked up a, a relatively small team that finished eighth in the season before I arrived and added one or two little players and, and ended up winning the league my first season, uh, which is, is no mean feat given the, the, uh, the other political issues and factors that you have to account for in, in doing well in this country. But ended up winning the league, followed that up with a third place and then off the back of that was offered the national team job as one of the best coaches in the country. So took that job, uh, went into some really difficult World Cup qualifiers, really probably at a time that the national team wasn't really ready for and 
such being the expectation in this country, um, following losses, I lost the job again. So lots of success, lots of failures and uh, lots of stories to tell. Yeah, great. Love hearing your stories. I, I'm just interested there. You, you, you say you come from Worthing and you get suddenly get called up to be a national team boss. Have you ever felt you've got imposter syndrome where <laughs> you turn up, you're thinking, what the hell am I doing? Um, I did to start with, but that was because I didn't understand the context I was working in. I, I turned up thinking, well, I'm, I'm a professional coach now. I, I'm, you know, I need to have this amount of knowledge. I should really be here. I should really be doing this. But what you start to find out is that even those at the highest level don't necessarily have the right level of education within the sport itself. They've always been at the highest level. They've always had the best pitchers, the best players. And you're working against these guys that are now almost lowering the level they're working at and really struggling with it. Can't get their head around. Can't get their head around the refereeing. Can't get their head around the facilities, the, the clubs, the way they're treated. I think when you come from a lower level and, and, and specifically a, a youth level or an education background, you're, you're so used to problem solving on the job, turning up to a session, you've only got three balls pumped up, a dog steals your cone, you're, you're on the playground, you're not on the pitch. You just alter, you just flip through, okay, I can't work with those, I can't do those sessions, I'm going to do that session today. That then leads you, once you get to the pro level, a lot of stuff becomes fairly easy. You know, things that a lot of professional coaches would kick off about. It just, it's like water off my back. It's not, I'm, what, are we training on that pitch, not that pitch there? Well, that pitch is rubbish. You've only got half a pitch to work on. Oh, okay, we'll just play small-sided. We'll do 5v5 five five and we'll build it up into a tournament and blah. And you just work with it, you know? And I think that's what working at the levels I've worked at before being a national team coach really helped me succeed once I did get to that higher level. If I'd always been at that higher level, I think the, the one minute I then dropped down and possibly took a job in a lower league, I'd have really struggled because... Uh, you know, my expectation would have been higher than they were prepared to, to uh, assist me with. So what, what, what lessons did those lower levels teach you, Simon? I think it was more around the idea of resilience, around the idea of, you know, I've got an idea that I need to put across to you um, and this is how I'm going to do it. And if it changes last minute, then I've got enough experience of working with young players and, and you know, difficult groups and, and difficult social settings and problem kids and, adults with heart problems. I've got so many different scenarios that I've used football as a vehicle for assistance or help or, or, or whatever the target was. But then going into a professional environment when I've got all these tools, I'm thinking, wow, this is easy. I can do this. This is no problem. I know football. And now I understand the context. You know, oh, we've lost the balls today. That's okay. We're going to do a fitness session and we're, oh, we haven't got any goals. Right. Get those wheelie bins on the pitch. You can play around the goals and you hit them from any angle. So it's just bringing in a different aspect to to how you play and I, and I think that coming from those levels coming from schools coming from difficult schools coming from difficult after school sessions which you're on a playground with 56 kids and three balls you know those sort of settings if you can do that then you can go up to a pro level and take a session with professional players even when you're missing a ball and a cone you know it's um those sort of things just flow off me so that resilience to just get that idea across and okay my first plan isn't going to work on the job, I'm going to think of something else. I'm going to come up with something that hits the same targets. Pretty similar to working with young kids, you know? You've got a plan to get five-year-olds to stand in a square. They don't want to stand in a square. Right, okay. You're not going to stand in a square. Right, I'm a magician and I'm going to chase you around and I'm going to get you all into the area I want to get to you by chasing you. So that, that kind of mindset then leads into a professional level where things are a lot easier, but problems just, they're not that much of a problem. So what, what has been 
or what do you think is the biggest challenge, the biggest problem, the biggest difficulty for, for a coach, for a football coach of an elite team? Um, I would say, to answer that question accurately, I would say it depends what country they're working in. If you, you're an English coach working in England, then you know, there's, there's impressing the bosses and making sure you're doing a good job and making sure there's some sort of value to having you in that session. If you're outside of your country and you're an English coach traveling to, take me for example, in Indonesia, you walk into a session and you try and you know, force your culture on guys that have already been there, done that, internationals, got loads of money, you know, got four cars, three houses. And there's this guy, this tattooed guy coming in from England who thinks he knows everything. And I'm trying to force my culture on you. You should be eating better. You should be doing this. You should... I'm not understanding the context. I'm not understanding the culture that these players are already in. If you go in there with a sledgehammer, you're going to get kicked out because you're going to upset so many people. They're going to go to the boss. The boss goes, no, I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're upsetting too many people. So it's, it's really going into that environment and evaluating, okay, where am I? What am I doing? What's the culture like? When do these guys, what's these guys' lifestyle like? What have they done in the past? How have they played in the past? Are they Muslim? Are they not? Are they Hindu? Are they Christian? Are they, what's their background? Because that makes a significant difference if guys are sleeping at a time when you're trying to train because they got up at four o'clock in the morning to train, uh, to, to pray. If you don't take that into account, it's all going to affect performance and it's all going to affect your sessions. And ultimately that reflects on you. So people are going to make judgments on you. So I think the biggest thing I've learned about working in different situations is to go in and quickly evaluate the situation you're in, be that the culture, the context, the religion, understand where you're doing your work. Because if you can understand what the, the group of kids that you're working with, the group of players you're working with, the group of adults you're working with, whoever it is you're working with, you can understand them better. Your message is so much stronger. Not, not even talking tactics or football or anything. Your, your message is so much stronger because you understand how to communicate with them in a language that they understand. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily even mean speaking their language. That just simply means understanding what they want to do and giving it to them and then trying to throw in some hints that can help them along the way. But talk us through what that looks like. You've just taken over at a club. You talked there about evaluating and, and, and looking at context and culture is really important. What kind of steps or what realistic steps do you take? You, you've entered the club. You've, you've got into the first training session. What, what happens next? What do you do? Well, I'll give you two examples. I walked into the club in Vietnam and I was sold. I just finished with the Philippines national team. I was on a bit of a high. My name was, was around and, and was linked with a lot of jobs. And, um, they were the ex-champions of Vietnam. I was sold them by the agent. They told me they were a great team. You know, still got a lot of national team players. When I arrived, they'd been stripped of their national team players. They had money issues. They were towards the bottom of the league. Now, I hadn't done enough evaluation. I hadn't done enough kind of research into what that club was about and the current situation they were in. I looked at some games, but didn't really look at patterns on how they'd been playing and what had been happening and players going back and forwards. So then when I got there, I've got this group of players that are already down in the dumps. They're not fit because of some of the work of the previous coach. The pressure on our shoulders is enormous to start winning games immediately. And these players are just not in a position to win. But also you had some very dominant foreigners and some very submissive locals, locals who weren't prepared to stand up to the, the foreigners. They were just prepared to just go along with it. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. If We're still going to get a salary whether we win or lose. So I had to go into that situation and work out who I could get on my side very quickly to make a difference. Just going out there and putting the session on and hoping that you're making things better, that, that isn't going to help you. You've got to get results quickly and you've got to show that, firstly, you're a value. I brought in a young English coach. We're down the bottom of the league. It looks like we're going to get relegated. 
what can this guy do for us? Are we just going to win the games with a younger coach or lose the games with a younger coach? Or is there some sort of hope? Is he going to show us something over the first three games that we think, oh, this guy's going to help us. Let's, let's back him. Let's, let's give him a bit of money when he needs it. Let's bring him in a new player when he asks for it. So you've really got to get, go in and, and succeed immediately. And the quickest way I've found is to get people on board, is to get people to like you. More than anything else, get people to like you. You're, eventually, you're going to have to say things that people don't like in order to make changes. We know that's going to happen. But over those first couple of weeks, you want players going, yeah, sessions are good. I'm really enjoying it. I feel fitter. I like the coach. The coach is good. He's happy. He's, he's positive. He's a nice guy. That then filters back to the boss. That then makes you keep your job for another couple of months. They go in and say, he's come in. He's tried to change everything. I'm, eating, I'm not eating rice. I'm eating vegetables and chicken. I'm, I'm going to bed at nine o'clock at night. I don't see my kids and my wife. And, you know, all of these aspects that you don't understand that they've been doing for such a long time. And you try to change them. That could cost you the job within the first month or so because the boss goes, this guy's not going to help. No one likes him. So all of these little bits and pieces. I mean, if, when we talk about evaluating, evaluating a, uh, a context that you're walking into, it's so important for a foreign coach. For a foreign coach stepping into a foreign situation. With Bayankara, it was a little bit different because the team were okay the season before. And they had a really good crop of good young players. But they didn't have a... Uh, they weren't defined by the way they played. They, they, they didn't have a, a, a character the way they played. You know, they, were, they just went out and played a game. And if they won, they lost. They didn't stick to the same formation. Um, they chopped and changed players all the time all the time and the foreign players dominated again. So I kind of built the team around the local guys and then the foreigners added to the local guys as opposed to building the team around the foreigners because we had such a good group of good young players. But also with, the, with my Indonesian team, that was a police-based team and half the players there were police officers that were seconded to the football team. So you have a totally different culture within a culture in that setting. So I had to go in and understand that when this boss policeman speaks, everyone just does that. No matter what he says, he could say, go and jump off that cliff right now. And everyone go, yes, sir. And they'll jump off the cliff. So you've got to build that into your understanding of what's going on here. So when guys aren't running because the boss is here and they're, they're stopping in the middle of the session and walking off to go and shake his hand and salute him. Like, what? You could kick off there. Why are you leaving the session? What's going on here? But a little bit of understanding. Oh, okay. And that's the police. Okay. The police boss likes you because you've allowed it. The players like you because you understand the hierarchy of the police. The foreigners aren't too fussed. They're wondering what's going on. But it just beds you into the team. It allows the bosses to believe in you that little bit more. So the biggest thing I can say is evaluate and understand the context that you're putting yourself into. Yeah, love that. Love, love the fact that it's, you're in a people business. You, you forget a lot of time the results are to do with the relationships you make with people. And similar in education and in, and in big business. Um, you touched upon there about culture and, and, and building a culture amongst your team. What are your core values that you try and get across to your team? Regardless of nationality, what country you're working in, what, what guides you? Um, I, could, I could speak for days about this because <laughs> some of the countries you go into, there are so many issues that you look at. Um, the main difference is to understand what you can fix and what you can't, what you can affect and what you can't affect. And culture plays a massive role in that. You know, there is a culture in Indonesia that people will do anything off their own back to try and earn a bit of money. So people will stand in the middle of the road to stop cars, to allow other cars to come out, even though it's your right away, 
they'll literally stand in traffic on a motorway to allow people to come out and they'll get a bit of money for it. So any which way they can find a, a way of making money. So obviously you start to notice over the first couple of days that money is a very important factor to culture in this country. So then when you apply that to football and you start saying, well, you know, we, we need to lower the budgets here and do this and that. Uh, understanding where you're going in is one thing and, and being able to evaluate that quickly is, is so crucial for success, but also being able to give a good identity of yourself across. Be, let them know in the first couple of weeks what you're about. And what are you about, Simon? Yeah, what, what, One of the key, what will they see from you in that, in that first week or so? You know, you talked about you want to yeah. be liked, you want people on board. And I think that's what Alan's little dig there is, is, is what, what are you, what are you about? What are people going to see in that first couple of weeks? What I want them to see is that I am there to make them better, but I don't want to be a teacher. And that's no disrespect to you two, by the way. <laughs> I don't want to be the guy who's standing there shouting at them, ordering them around, do this, do that, do this, do that, and you'll get better. Teaching's moved on a bit since then, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> like I say, it's not in respect to you two, because I know you two are great. No, I, I, I think because I'm a little bit younger, um, my appearance, maybe because I've got tattoos, I'm not your conventional looking elite level football coach. I think that allows me to... to, to Run the, run the risk of being a little bit closer to the players than maybe other coaches would. Some coaches, for example, Martin O'Neill, would, would have a real divide between him and the players. He would, his first team coach would come and do stuff. Martin O'Neill would show up, have a little look, leave. I'm very much, I want to be on the pitch. I'm hands-on. So whenever, what I would like to think that people say about me is when I join, when I take a job, I'm two-footed. I'm, I'm straight in. I'm in at the deep end but not callous enough to start telling people left, right, and center, this is what you need to do. This is part of a project and we're going to find our way and we're going to make mistakes, but whatever happens, we're going to make those mistakes together. And as I said earlier about trying to build that trust, trying to build that unity before you even talk football, before you even talk about a tactic or a new formation, getting these players to believe in that you're in there for the right reasons. You're not in there for money or a big salary, or this is a great job. You're in there because we're going to get better and I'm going to make you better, but I'm not going to hold your hand and wipe your backside and tell you everything's going to be fine. You're going to have to do that yourself. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to put curfews on you at nighttime. They love that one. That one, they like you for that. I'm not going to put curfews on. I'm not going to fine you. I'm not going to take money off you because finding people, I think, especially in this part of the world, there's such a big difference between those that have money and those that don't. Uh, one million to a guy who's got a lot of money is nothing. He'll throw it at you. Whereas one million to a guy who provides for his family and half his village that might mean his parents are going to go without food this month. So to find people without understanding the whole culture is a dangerous situation. You're, you're kind of setting dangerous precedents. So I don't find people. And that straight away, they're like, well, I'm going to set this guy's, what, so he's coming, he's not finding people. He doesn't set curfews. But what I do say is that the responsibility is with you. If you are late, I'll not shout at you. I won't get angry. I really don't have time for that. I'm not your dad and I'm not a teacher but you won't play. It's fairly simple. When you don't get selected, you don't need to come and ask me why you didn't get selected. Well, you were late for training. You didn't show up for training. You were late for the game. That's you. That's on you. You want me to tell you to your face, I'll tell you, but take responsibility for yourself. And I think that probably that's the biggest thing. Those things are the biggest things I would, I would probably say that players will, will point to as a difference between me and another coach is that I really try and put the responsibility back on players 
who maybe don't understand what it is to be a professional footballer. I kind of give them hints and tips along the way, but I don't stand at the door at 10 o'clock at the hotel going, I don't have time for that. But what I will do is find out through other players who was there and who wasn't. And either I'll have a quiet word with them the next day or they just won't get selected. Or I'll say to them in the hotel, don't bother coming to training today. Just stay in the hotel, have a little think and leave. Won't get angry, won't shout. Um, so I think that a lot of that goes towards trying to get the players on board early on in the first couple of weeks, trying to get them to like you by coming out with, with not things that shock them, but maybe a different viewpoint. They're used to player coaches, foreign coaches coming in and blah, blah, blah. You need to do this. You don't eat properly. Blah. Um, my, my level of experience, having been here a couple of times and failed, you can't do that. You have to kind of work with what you've got and change it slowly over time. But that first, first point, you've got to get them to believe in you. You've got to get them to think that this guy's here for the right reasons and not just money. So, um, yeah, I would, I would say that I work really hard on trying to build a unit before we go anywhere near a football pitch. Yeah, it's interesting there you talk about uh, learning from mistakes and you clearly, were you taught any of these things on coaching <laughs> or anything? Like not, that? A not a chance. Not a chance. So where did you, is this just trial by error along the way? How did you develop this, this sort of system you've got going on of responsibility over to the players? I, if I put cards on table, I probably didn't understand the full job when I got it with the Philippines. I mean, I got it out of nothing. I arrived 10 days after I accepted the job. All of a sudden, I'm a national team and coach, but I know football. And I was able to go onto a pitch and I'd worked in community settings before. So... A lot of the job that I did with Brighton and Hove Albion for the best part of seven years was, was running or, or helping run their community scheme, which is often seen as the first line of marketing for any football club. So you're going into environments where, oh, it's the football club. Okay, it's Brighton and Hove Albion or it's, it's Nike or whoever you're, you're representing. And you've got to be that salesperson. You've got to show yourself up. You've got to get these guys to, to believe in what you're doing because you're doing so many different projects. We'd work with... with um, recovering alcoholics. We do a football tournament with recovering alcoholics. We got kids with antisocial behavior. They tell everyone where to go at any point. They throw rocks at the, at the ambulances and the fire engines. They come from a really bad part of town. And there's me walking in from the football club going, hey, let's all play football. So there's got to be some sort of, you know, relationship building going on there. And what I found was the stronger relationships I built, the better the success were. If I just walked in and went, we're going to play football, Oi, come here. They don't respond to that. But if you can build a relationship first and then give them something to kind of put their energy and efforts into, that's when you get real success. So really, that was kind of inbuilt in me once I, even, once I got to the Philippines. And it wasn't really a change in character. It was just, that's what I knew. That's what I'm going back to. And arguably, that was kind of a naive viewpoint going into a professional level. But because it was the Philippines, it kind of worked. And it brought us all together. Um, the level was at a level that I didn't feel was too difficult in terms of the coaching. And we could work really hard on, on building relationships and, and bringing a team together that had kind of foreigners. Like in the Philippines, you have Filipinos that have other passports that are Western educated. And then you have the locals and they all play in the same team. And the locals don't speak to the, the Western guys. The Western guys don't really value the local guys. You really had to try and pull this together. And given the results that, that we were able to achieve, you would probably argue that that was successful. So, yeah, I... I incredibly important that relationship building stage you bypass that and just dive straight in 
um, you're on a hide into nothing. You're going to be out of the job very quickly. Mm. What's the uh, what's the biggest challenge you've you've ever faced as a coach personally? Can you tell us about something that that you found tough or that you didn't get right in your coaching career? Um, the biggest challenge that I faced was something I got right. It wasn't necessarily something that I failed in. Um, I could, again, bore you for another couple of hours on things I've failed in. I've been sacked a few times. But fortunately, <laughs> I've been able to learn lessons. But the, the biggest challenge I had, um, so there was a club that I had previously, and my assistant coach called me in the middle of the night. must have been quarter to midnight. And he said, um, coach, I don't mean to worry you, but we need to have a chat with one of this, this player's girlfriends. Right, okay. So spoke to the girlfriend. The girlfriend said that she was just cleaning out her boyfriend, who was one of my players' bags, his fitness bag, and she found a tablet in his bag that looked very much like a tablet you would see pretty much on any Saturday night in a nightclub. So she was really concerned that she'd found this little tablet in a little plastic bag that had all the hallmarks of being nothing to do with football. So she was very concerned. And for whatever reason, she decided to tell me. Now, whether it's because she trusted me, because I had a good relationship with her and with the player, and she didn't want to go to any sort of authoritative figure. Um, I then had to deal with that situation. What, what on earth is going on? One of my players has just been caught with drugs in his bag. Turns out, after some investigation, that when questioned, and I pulled this guy to one side and had a quiet discussion with him. Why is there a pill in your bag? Well, um, it turns out that I asked for something extra to give me a boost in training to our fitness coach. And the fitness coach provided him with this. Right, okay, so now you're finding out that one of your staff members is providing illegal substances to one of your players. <laughs> Within the same, I mean, this is, this is happening. I've got to deal with this right now. And I have to deal with this now before the bosses find out, the sponsors find out, the press and the police find out. So I've got to deal with this right now. It, it was getting to about one o'clock in the morning. So I've called my um, fitness coach up. Right, we need to have a meeting right now. Come meet me right now. This is very serious. Sat him down and I just simply said to him, listen, I, I don't want any excuses. I don't want this, that, that. I need to know, did you give this pill to this player or not? Well, he asked for something. He, he, he needed something. Did you give this pill to this player or not? Simple answers. I don't, I don't need to hear context. I need to know whether you did it, did it or not. Yes, I gave it to him. I said, right, what is it? Said, well, it's, it's, it's uh, and he wouldn't answer that question. Said, okay, where'd you get it from? Well, it's something, something I've used in the past and it really helped me, so I thought I could pass it on to the player. Okay, so I'm really not getting any further with it. And I said, so this thing you've given him, you're saying it's just, it's just caffeine. It's a caffeine, yeah, it's natural, it's caffeine, but it's, it's natural. I said, okay, so what are the, uh, what's the maximum amount that a player can intake, uh, you know, when he gets drug tested? What's, what are the, the authorities looking for? Oh, uh, I don't know. I said, so you're giving the players substances and you have no idea what substances are allowed and what aren't? No, no idea. No, sorry. Um, right, okay, we'll leave it there. And we left. And I sat down with my assistant and the bosses still hadn't got wind of this, thankfully. It hadn't got out. Um, I called in an advisor who was a very good friend of uh, the, the fitness coach. And I just said, look, we're going to have to do something about this. Now, what I would like to do is give him two choices. He either walks away from the club because he's far too busy and can't commit anymore, 
or we say we give it to the bosses on a platter and let them deal with it and however it falls out it falls out um to which we all said better the bosses don't find out because that could cause major embarrassment for everyone and ultimately i'm the captain of the ship so that could drag me down with it so we ended up pulling the the fitness coach in and said to him okay this is what's happened this is what's going to happen you have two choices. You can either leave it to me. I pass it to the bosses. I step back and whatever happens, happens. If you're that sure that it was natural and it was just Kathy, or you step away from the club right now, citing the fact that oh, I'm really busy and other commitments have kind of pulled you away and you can't give as much time to the football club. So he put out a little email and a text message the next day on social media. I'm very sorry to be stepping away from the club. Very busy at this time. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I then pulled the player in. So at this point, I've only just found out what's happened from the player, not why did you ask for it in the first place and what did you think you were getting? Um, he gave me a very good answer. He said that I wasn't sure what I was getting. That's why it was in my bag and not in my mouth, which is actually a pretty smart answer. You can't really do a lot with that. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I said to him, listen, this is a warning. And that leash that you're on, that every player is on, just got about this long. Now, if there's any other issues that anything that goes down this road i pull that leash you're gone contract whoosh, finished because i know about this no one else does so i expect perfection in terms of your attitude from then on he went on to football pitch the next day was the best player was man of the match three out of the next five games and from then on i had such a stronger relationship with that player because when it came down to it, i backed him over staff i didn't know i had to make a judgment and the lesser of the evils was actually to trust the player I'd known the player before. I don't think he'd do that, to be honest. His story kind of made sense. Um, but it was a real test. It was a real difficult one. And to this day, the owners of that football club do not know, none of the league, none of the press, none of the other players even know about that whole situation. That was kept so quiet, so compact. And that could really have sunk the whole organisation if that had got out. It would have been a major deal. Um, but that was probably the biggest individual challenge that I've ever had when someone phones me up and goes, Coach, I need you for something that you hate those words as a head coach at any time during the day coach we've got an issue oh, but yeah it's fair to say i wasn't really expecting that one but it was something that we dealt with we got on with it and that player went on to be really good for us there's no uh, there's no module that teaches you that on your uefa license huh? <laughs> no again you know you, you you just apply common sense and, and what you know about making relationships and i had a really good relationship with the player and i believed in what he was saying I didn't have a good relationship with the fitness coach. He was telling me lies and I could tell he was telling me lies. So taking all football out of it, someone needed to make a decision before someone above us made a decision and we're all out on our ear. So you take that on board, it's part of my job, it's part of my responsibility. It's never in any qualification how to deal with a player that's taking drugs or blah, blah, blah. You just apply common sense. You deal with it in the fairest way you can. And you, know, you make that problem become not a problem anymore by dealing with it in the best way that you can. But what you're talking about there is, is in many ways the, these, these two individuals' previous attitude and relationship with you suddenly became really important there. And, and you didn't have the scope to investigate it criminally or you know, as, as, as somebody would maybe a forensic way, but you do it based on that relationship that you feel you've got. And as it turned out, I, I've been told in the past that that was the right decision, that the guy that I had brought in, the advisor, who knew him very well, um, he's gone on to have a bit of an issue with things like that. Things have come up since that, that have kind of, he's always been associated with something along the lines of that. So um, I had to make a, a judgment and that could have backfired on me massively. 
but I had to make a judgment. And the only thing I could judge it on was my relationships. And that's one thing I, I pride myself on is that I build very good relationships within football clubs. I don't think anyone who's ever worked with me can turn around and call me an ass. But I try very, very hard to create very strong relationships. And in that sense, that really, really assisted my decision-making and ultimately allowed me to make the right decision. So those relationships mattered. Absolutely. Yeah, just, just touching upon that, Simon, do you have a clear set of rules or do you have expectations? Because there's a distinct difference between having yeah. rules that can be broken or expectations that can be met. Where do you fall in that? Um, I hold everyone to the expectation. I think rules are there for the good of the team to create some sort of discipline and structure. But at the same time, not everybody's the same. Not everyone, and especially when you're working in a foreign country, you're working in uh, a culture you don't necessarily understand. And then you're thrown in the mix a guy from Brazil, a guy from Korea, two totally different cultures in terms of their discipline. So to try and keep everyone to the same rules is an incredibly difficult thing. I, don't, I just do don't do think it? it's possible. Yeah, yes, so you can. can, yeah. can, can. But, but you can only do it if you have very strong relationships and you put the effort into creating those relationships straight away. Because then you know what, that, what, what makes that player tick. You know, my Korean player, he's a quiet guy. He won't speak out. He's not someone who talks about himself. Family's number one in his life. His mum and dad fly in every month to watch him play games. I know that about him. The Brazilian guy thinks he's, the, he thinks he's God's gift points to his CV and goes back to the fact that he scored 35 goals last season. That's why he's in the team this year. That's why he can come in when he wants because he scores that many goals. I know that about him. So, you know, your judgments end up being based on that. The guy comes in at, at the two players walk in at different times, you know, one minute after each other, the Korean guy walks in. I'm really sorry. My parents flight was delayed. Well, I know they fly in all the time. I know there's an issue. He's never done that before. He's, he's shown ultimate discipline up until now. You're likely to let that go. But when the other player walks in a minute after him, hang on a second, what are you walking in this time for? You've got absolutely no reason to be out. You're here as a single guy. I know you don't have family here. No one visits you. So that, that relationship has to be strong. You have to have that relationship to understand if you're going to then say that, not that rules don't matter, but expectation is so much more important than the rules you've set. There's always, there's always you know, something that, contradicts what you put down. There's always a, oh, I had to come in at that time. I had this issue. I couldn't do that. You know, uh, life happens and you, you, can't, you can't avoid that. But how you deal with it will ultimately decide whether you're successful or not. Yeah, very interesting to, to look at those. There's no black and white. It's just a bit of grey with your guidelines that you try and interpret in between. Really Everyone to the same expectation. Everybody. Whether they're a 17-year-old kid who's just come up or an ex-Premier League footballer, you hold everyone to the same expectation. But the rules you set and how you handle each player, that's got nothing to do with football. That's down to your man management and how you see yourself as a coach. Um, and that's something, you know, touch wood, that I've always been quite successful at, despite results, good or bad. What, what do you see as the, the biggest difference between, you know, those players that really kick on and, and go to the next level and, and, and those that don't quite get there? Because you've managed some big names, you've managed some great players. And you've managed lots, yeah. lots of youngsters who, who maybe didn't make it, didn't get there. What's the biggest difference? Um, it's difficult to pinpoint one. I think it's a combination of, of ego along with how coachable are they? How, how, how willing are they to take on new information and not treat it with ego? What's this guy talking about? Why, is, why, why does he think he's, you know, um, 
at Biancara, we had a player, Portuguese player came in who grew up with Ronaldo. Um, excellent player. I mean, a proper role model in every sense of the word. Probably the best player I've ever worked with. Um, and at the beginning of the year, he would always go up to the egg station. When we had the buffet, breakfast, lunch, dinner, he's always ordering uh, egg whites. He'd just have egg whites on toast. That's what he'd have in the morning. People are like, why are you eating that? And all the locals are eating mounds of rice with chicken and fish and, you know, just loading themselves down. The effect that this guy had, his professionalism throughout the whole year, the way he carried himself and the things that we talked about, look, you want to be somewhere, find someone who's there, copy them, do what they do, learn lessons from them. Don't think that you know it all. You don't, because that's why you're there. You're here, he's there. Do what he does. Just simply that idea. Take responsibility for yourself. By the end of the year, I could never get an omelette at breakfast because all the eggs had been finished because every single player was now queuing up for egg white omelettes because that's what Paolo did and I wanted to be Paolo. So now all the young players are just copying Paolo. They're copying doing what he does. And that was such a fantastic thing to witness, to be able to say, look at that. Now we can't get omelettes because every single player is now eating a proper breakfast because of the fact that Paolo is such a, uh, an influential individual. And that whole idea that we tried to bring to take responsibility for yourself was, was so key in doing that. And I have coached some big names and, and worked with some big players and I've learned a huge amount from dealing with big players at a lower level, that, that dealing with their expectation, dealing with their, their wants and needs every day and not just in a sense of cars and houses giving me the ball, putting me the ball in, in good positions, crossing the ball onto my head that I can finish, not just sticking it 50-50 into an area and I've got to go and fight for it. I'm not used to doing that. I'm used to working with someone who can cross a ball. So working with these players just teaches you so much. But again, we, we go back to that evaluation and that re relationship building. Evaluate the fact and understand, respect the fact he's a Premier League footballer. He's going to come in from a totally different context that he's now playing. So... You hold him to the level, you know, why are you not chasing the ball? Why are you not doing, why are you not? We had a problem that when I signed this guy from the Premier League, people would just give him the ball and stop. They just expect him to beat everyone and score because he came from the Premier League. He's not that type of player. He's a finisher. So you have to do the work, put it into an area. He puts it in the back of the net. That's his job. And that's what he did in the Premier League for years and years. But then when he comes here, you've got to try and manage that whole situation that this guy's expectations here, what he's really going to get is this. And somewhere in the middle, you, he's got to try and understand that this is what he's now going to have to work with without getting upset, without screaming at people, and without pissing people off. Um, a huge amount of lessons from working with, with players at that level. So you, you talked there about expectations, holding everybody to a level. Give us three things that, that you hold every player to. doesn't matter if they're a big-time Charlie or a new kid on the block. What are the three things that you want, Budge? Respect, respect individuals. It, to be honest... Everything comes down to respect. Um, it all comes down to, firstly, respect each individual player. Every individual player is different. What Paolo believes in is not what, um, you know, one of the local 17-year-old, 18-year-old players believe in. They come from different backgrounds. But respect the fact that he has a different viewpoint from you. You don't know it all. And if we all knew it all, we'd be playing in the Premier League. We wouldn't be in Indonesia, that's for sure. So there's a reason why we're here. So take that into account where you're putting opinions out there and you're making judgments on people. The second I would say would be um, respect the team. The team is always bigger than you. You play a part in our ultimate success and you might play a very big part, but ultimately it's about the team. It's about us as a unit, me included, the physio, the trainers, the kit men, the pitch, guys who cut the pitch, everybody. Respect every single person that does a job for you because every single person 
if they're under me and I'm doing my job, every single person is here to make you better. So respect that fact. No one's just here for the money. No one's just here because they've got nothing better to do. Everything we do is trying to make you better, trying to make you more successful. So respect the team. And then lastly, and this is something that probably differs me from most other coaches, respect the game. Just because you can get a penalty does not mean it's the right thing to do. Just because you can con a referee, again, does not mean it's the right thing to do. And we start, we start talking about values that transcend sport, that transcend football. We start talking about building, um, you know, likable, knowledgeable, ethical, moral-based individuals who then go out into the world once they're finished football. But because they've taken that viewpoint within football, I'm not going to dive. I'm going to do what I can to put the ball in the back of the net. I'm not going to dive. Um, what I do say to players is that if you have been fouled, make sure the referee knows you're fat, that you've been fouled. Because, uh, you know, ultimately you can't be naive to it. You can't just say, stay on your feet at all costs. At all costs, stay on your feet. Well, this guy's kicking lumps out of you and you're going out of your way to stay up on your feet. You're actually in danger of getting injured because the referee is not going to give you a foul. So make sure the referee understands you've been fouled. But if I see you diving, I'll come down on you like a ton of bricks because you know that's not what I'm about. So I think those three things, I could probably, I could probably run off a few more things, but those things are off the top of my head, the three most important things to me when, when I'm talking about how individuals respond to the information they're getting from me as a head coach. So if, if I've understood you right there, your three things essentially, obviously respect's a big key one in there, but you also touched a lot there on humility and honesty, didn't you? Of just, just, just being yeah. a stand-up guy. Oh, well, I think that, that, that all falls under that. You know, have the respect to know that someone's right and you're wrong. And in which case, hold your hand up. Mm. You know, some, I get it wrong. I, I, one of the things I, I know about myself, I'm not the best coach in the world. I am a very good relationship builder. I know that. And I'm very good at creating teams and getting teams to play as a unit. Now, sometimes that translates into results. Sometimes they're not a great team. They don't win anyway. There may be a great team off the pitch, but there are better teams out there. But one thing I've always been able to do is build teams. And, and if they don't respect each other as a start point, they don't respect that this foreigner has been brought in to make us better, not to take the place of a local, not to, because he's coming in on massive money and he's here with a big cigar. That's my job to make sure he's not that guy. But when we, when we do bring him in and someone like Paolo comes in, you've got guys like, you know, Lee who played for us at Biancara. These are very honest, stand up, respectable guys. And they will come down and you like a ton of bricks if they think you're cheating. If they think you're trying to get some sort of advantage, you're not respecting others. It's just kind of the culture that, that they've brought with them. And I think that's, it was very uh, infectious. And it, it's something that I really like to see. But yeah, I, I, you're right. That is, that's crucial, is being able to, to hold your hand up and say when you've done something wrong. And, and in fact, I took that into the national team because I was aware of Indonesian culture that no one will stand up and ask a question if they don't know. I can talk for five minutes. They'll, and do you understand? Yeah. Do you know what you're doing? Yeah. Okay, go and stand over there. Yeah. Ready, go. No, stop. I haven't got a clue because they, they won't ask questions. So I actually, even with, and you might laugh at this, full, full-time professionals at the highest level in this country playing national team in World Cup qualifiers, I wrote a contract for them with me. So they have their contract with their club, they don't have a contract with the national team, but they have, their, they have a contract with me as a coach. And on that contract, it says that I will play to the best of my abilities at all times. I will put my hand up and ask a question if I don't understand. I will respect my other teammates. I do understand I'm part of the process, not the process. 
just something along the lines of that, you know? And it's, it's a private thing that I have with them. It's not uh, something they're going to go to lawyers about and we both sign it, you know, and we both shake hands and, and I offer them the opportunity to bring their agent in if they want to discuss terms, but that will be thrown out straight away. So we make a bit of a joke about it, but they know that there's some truth behind it and that's what I expect. So then when I say to them, listen, why didn't you put your hand up? You told me you were going to do that. That's the level I hold you to now. You're a national team footballer. This is why we do these things. It's not good enough just to hide off in the corner at your club team. This so is you, the highest level and we need to get better. Hard. You're really working hard there to get, get these, these players to respect themselves as well. Massively. Mm. Massively. Because it's such an important part, I feel. And, and you know, I'm not here to say that I'm the be-all, end-all of, of group dynamics and team management. But what I've found is that the stronger team goes into situations in Indonesia where you're facing... 40, 50, 60,000 incredibly aggressive fans who will storm the pitch at the blow of a whistle. Um, they've got to be resilient to that. And the best way of being resilient to that is know you've got 10 brothers standing behind you, another 10 brothers on the bench, and another you know, four or five dads and uncles up in the crowd who will fight for you when they need to. And if we can do that, that's a hell of a unit to bring together. And it gives you so much strength going into difficult situations. Mm. Yeah, I, what I take from that, Simon, also is... is just really good role modeling. And I just want to delve a little bit deeper into that in, in looking at who, who who's given you the best bit of leadership advice? Who's your role models for what you're doing? It's difficult to say, you know, because I, I like I say, I, I made such a leap into professional football that it wasn't really the time for me to to learn my trade. I just went in and, and everything that I, I have and that I know came from youth level coaching, school sessions, community work, development work, um, you know, all that good stuff that you're, you're trying to make people better. You then take that into a professional environment and yeah, you've got to be on the ball when it comes to football because they'll see through that. But all of that stuff still applies. Trying to work with antisocial kids in a difficult ward of a difficult village. You know, the, the learnings that you take from that and how you communicate with people who don't want to listen to you, who think they're better than you, who think they know everything and you suddenly you find a way to break down the defenses and get your message in that that relates directly to a brazilian footballer who's just come in off scoring 45 goals last season thinks he's a superstar isn't really bothered what you've got to say but you've got to find a way of breaking through those defenses and speaking to him it's a, it's a direct relationship to me anyway that, that's what i see so that background really helped me to throw me into a difficult environment like indonesia maybe it wouldn't be the same you know, working in the Premier League or working in Germany or working in a more established league. But here where it's, you know, you, you, you find something different every day. It really helped to have that facet, that ability to be able to break down defences and find a way of communicating with people that, you know, guys will tell me, don't pick that guy. Oh, for God's sake, don't pick that guy. He'll get you sacked. Yet, I've got a great relationship with him and he was one of the best players. And people are saying, how did you manage to get him to play for you? Well, I just adapted the knowledge I had working with those you know, difficult 14-year-olds who every second word was a swear word and they'd throw rocks at you rather than play football. You know, that, that it's just direct correlation to me. Um, so I'm very lucky in that sense that I have that background. But I, I think through a little bit of trial and error and mistakes made, um, but being able to evaluate very quickly, did I make a mistake there? Was that a good thing? Should I do that again? Yeah, that worked. I'll do that one again. I'll work on that again. I'll, I'll apply that, that approach again. Um, I've been able to do that, fortunately. 
I'm just interested to know then, do you have a sounding board? Do you have like a mentor? Do you have someone you can talk to and, uh, and go through these things with and reflect upon? Um, probably uh, one or two, I guess, but not necessarily for everyday things. And because the everyday things that come at you so thick and fast, you don't really have time to go, hang on a second, just wait for my response. <laughs> think about this. You know, you don't have that time. You just got, you've just got to react. And like I was talking about the drug situation, you've just got to react with the best knowledge you can, given, you know, the, the upbringing you, that, that you were given. And, um, you know, my old man rode me quite hard for quite a while. My, my, without delving too deeply in and getting all weepy and asking me to pull violins out, you know, my mum and dad split when I was 10 years old. I became, my dad worked a full-time job. I had to look after my younger brother from pretty much the age of 10 up until I was 18. So I was doing a lot of the stuff myself. I was used to being in a position of, Scott, come on, we've got to go and do this. Scott, we've got to do this. Like, I'll make the dinner, you do this. Right, I, I do this, you do this. I was in that situation from kind of 10 years onward. So I understood a little bit about being a leader, even though I didn't necessarily know I was a leader, if you see what I mean. I, 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 a lot of situations I've been in the past, have made me show leadership. So in which case, when I get in a position of leadership, it didn't feel too different for me. I wasn't intimidated by being a national team head coach, despite only ever working at, at non-league level. I was a leader of people. I, I know football. I like these guys. They now like me. We're all playing together. It's all good. How difficult can it be? Easy as <laughs> that. start playing games and start losing games and then you start losing jobs, yeah. It's interesting yeah, it's that though, when people talk about like John Terry and, and captains being born leaders, the example you're talking about there is that it's clearly experience as well and the journey you've been on and the experiences that you have that makes you develop leadership skills. You're not suddenly just able to lead. Would you agree? 100%. I, I, I couldn't write a book on leadership. I don't know the the theories and the terminology that, that would make it in any way scientific. But I can pull story after story after story, dating back to when I was 10, yeah. you know, that I've had to just step up and deal with it. And right, this is what life's thrown at me and I'm just going to deal with it. And, I, and like I say, I didn't know I really was a leader until I was put into a position of leadership and needed to show those qualities. And lo and behold, in the back of my head, I had them stored away. And that wasn't because I'd thought, I'm going to be a head coach one day, so I need to practice being a leader in front of people. Uh, no, I was still, you know, when I was 18, 19, I was still nervous speaking in front of people. But the more you do it, the better you get at it. You don't necessarily study books to work out little tricks and skills on how to do it. You just do it. And then by the time you get to 30, you know, whatever I, uh, 42, 42 now, um, you know, you've done it so many times and in so many different environments, I feel comfortable walking in with a Premier League chairman. Because I know I can tell him stories where he'll go, really? That happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens in this part of the world. But I know that I can walk into a, a Premier League chairman's office and sit and have a, a knowledgeable conversation with him. But at the same time, I can talk to a, in, in broken Bahasa, with a 15-year-old kid who wants to know what football's like at professional level. And it, in fact, I think that ability was, was the job I had with Nike. Nike liked that about me. They, they knew that I knew what was happening at grassroots football right through to professional level football. Uh, and that's, I was employed by them for quite a while to do, to do that job and just advise them on what was happening in football at all these different levels. So um, I think that acknowledgement and that, that belief that I always had that ability made, made a lot of situations I've been kind of thrown into. You know, for example, working with Bayankara, we, we had a night out. They love karaoke. 
much like the Philippines, everything ends up a karaoke night. When someone puts a dinner on for you, there's always a karaoke machine in the corner. Alan, Alan loves karaoke, bang into it. We've all done it because we're in this part of the world and you get called up and it doesn't matter whether you like it or you, you know, you're one of those that literally is getting dragged up. Sometimes you realize that for the greater good, you've got to get out there and do it. And even if it's in front of, the last time I did it, I had the number one policeman in the country in Indonesia's control of everything comes in with his SWAT team. And he went up and sung a song, then looks at me and goes, your turn coach. And I've got all my players behind me. I've got three live TV cameras, about 400 people in the room. There's an Indonesian band and all they've sung is Indonesian songs. So I've got to go up on stage and, do you know any uh, Oasis by any chance? <laughs> what did you sing? I, try and find, I sung Oasis, Don't Look Back in Anger with one guy who knew the song. The whole rest oh. of the band were just sat there not knowing anything. But this guy fortunately knew how to play it. But again, that's a situation that if I'd have backed down from that, those players look at me and go, oh. But I went, yeah, okay, fine. No problem. I'll go up and do it. It's not a problem. I don't like doing it. It's not something I choose to do. But given that situation, as head coach of the team, I want players to like me. I need to, people to believe in me. I want people to believe that I'm creating this positive environment. Yeah, I'll go up and do it. No problem. I'll make an ass of myself. Mm. Um, That's a re- really yeah. nice example of something we were reading the other day. Brené Brown talks about a sliding doors moment and an opportunity where something like that comes out, where it's a great opportunity to build trust or to break trust. And by giving that, that opportunity to get up there and sing and, you know, make a bit of a clown of yourself, as I'm sure you did. Not, not that I'm trying to... <laughs> you no, I did. Out. I did. But, you, you know, you, you've, you've really built that trust there. And, you know, you, what you've alluded to just previous to that as well is an incredible skill to have to be approachable and adaptable enough to have conversations with, you know, very wealthy Premier League chairman, but at the same time speak on a level to a 15-year-old kid is, uh, is no mean feat. Good on you. It's a great thing to have. Well, like I say, I... I you've just put it a lot more eloquently than I could in that I've got a story that tells you exactly what you've just said, but I don't necessarily know that that was the right way to do things. I just given my background and what, well, I need to get up on stage here. I can't say no to this. There's other times where if I'm out with a couple of mates and they try and get me up, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to do karaoke things. No. Um, but in that situation, I've got a lot of people expecting me to go up on stage. So I've got to go and do it. Whether I like to do it or not is irrelevant. It's kind of, it becomes part of the job, even though it's a very casual environment and it's entertainment. That's part of the job as a head coach and a leader of people that I need, like you say, to get these guys to believe into me, that I'm approachable, that I'm a, I'm a guy that they can come to me when they've got a problem. Because if they've got a problem and they don't tell me, I judge them based on their performance. And if there's reasons for those performance, if they don't tell me, I keep telling them, why would you not say that? I think you're having a crap day. So you don't get picked on Saturday for the team. There's reasons for that. You're sick. Your wife's sick. Your baby's ill. Tell me. And if I can make that door just that little bit more open so that they can walk through it and tell me their problems, that relationship just gets stronger. My knowledge gets better of them. The communication gets better and my transference of what I've got in my head and what they've got to do for me on a Saturday just gets even stronger. That, that trust is built as a result, isn't it? Um, we're going we're to enter towards winding down now, Simon. I want to ask sure. you a few quick fire bits and bobs. Um, what What is the best piece of leadership advice that you've been given or something that has always stuck with you? Um, my, I guess it comes from my dad, really. He's, he, he, a lot of people have said it, but the first time I heard my dad say it, and um, 
it was always in the back of my head. And then I heard another quite respected coach in this part of the world say it to me as well, is that when you walk into a room full of football people, don't be the first to speak because you haven't done your evaluation yet. You don't know who's in there. You don't know what, what viewpoints are in, in the room. And if you walk in and just go, well, that player's crap and that team will never win anything, you can look like a right ass. You can really sell yourself out of a job because you never know who's listening. There might be two or three employers in the room. You haven't got a clue. So I think we go back again to understanding that context and evaluating that situation you walk into. If you're the first to speak, you're just putting yourself on a pedestal there for people to throw things at you. You walk in there, let other people speak. And, and, and I think when you're employed to have an opinion, and that's what a football coach is, he's employed to have an opinion about football. If I don't have an opinion about football, then I can't be a football coach. So I have to sell my opinion to players, to coaches, to managers, to bosses, whoever. If I'm out there throwing an opinion about left, right, and center about anything, people just think, that's, that's a dick. Who do you think you Mourinho. You never know who's there. So um, I think that stuck with me quite a lot, is, is don't be the first person to speak in a room where you know there's some educated people in the room. Good. I like that one. Yeah, and that's a, that's a new one. I've not heard that one. It's very interesting for me and Lewis going into new jobs, actually, how, how we could take that one forward. Yeah, well, it's... it's, it's They've signed you. You're there to, to do something. They introduce you to bosses and stuff and everyone's wanting to know, but you really need to find out where you are. You don't want to go up in, you know, and say something at this level that people go, what's this guy talking about? But at the same time, you don't want to be too basic in how you sound. So you're, it's, it's, it's this whole part of bedding yourself into the football club and creating those relationships early. Don't give too much away too early. Okay. That's good tips. Um, you'll like this one. Uh, on. Which three leaders in history would you love to go out for a meal with? <laughs> wow, I should have researched this one. Um, apart from me and Alan. In history. <laughs> apart, apart from you and Alan. Um, I think obviously I, I would love to go out for a meal with, with, um, with Alex Ferguson, of course. I'd love to have him at the table. Just purely to just kick his brains on, on how he managed to be so successful for so long. Um, trying to not be cheesy and just pull names out just to answer the question you know I'm trying to put a bit of thought behind <laughs> it but um, I, I, I think I've said before in a few interviews I was always impressed and I've always kind of been in awe of a, of a coach called Jock Steen who was the old Celtic coach Celtic, and yeah. he was he came from from very humble backgrounds and ended up winning what what is today the Champions League in 1967 with a Celtic team the year before Man United did it um, so with a team of and Jock Steen, you've got plenty of drink at the moment. You, are you going to oh, ask plenty? Tito plenty. or another another one who likes to drink? Um, Cluffy, put Cluffy in there, you'd be in trouble. <laughs> see, but see, I've I've had a little taste of Cluffy, and it's interesting because I, I I know Des Walker very well, and we've we've been out for dinner a few times, and I've already almost had that conversation. So it's almost like I'm speaking to Des Walker's kind of. You know, I mean, protege. Some of the opinions that Des Walker came out with, I was like, "Well, oh, that's that's kind of blown my mind that you're that kind of black and white about what should be done on a training pitch." Very interesting. I, I digress, but a very interesting conversation. Probably someone like um, Zinedine Zidane, because he was a captain for a long time, won World Cups, made a decision to get himself sent off in his final game. We'll never forget his final game. Panicked a goal to start with, then headbutted someone in a World Cup final, 
did everything there is to do and is now a Champions League winning manager. It would be interesting to see how he made that transition from being such an incredible player to obviously a very successful coach. And, and what, I mean, it, a dinner party, it's always going to be football if I'm at the table. So it's never going to be about anything else. So it would always be historical leaders from football and guys that have shown things that I would really want to know about. Give, give, us, your, give us the top of your list for somebody non-football. Well, I think he's on the top of everyone's list at the minute is Jordan. Michael Jordan. It'd be very interesting to sit down and have a chat with him and, and listen to him. I mean, I, I don't know about how you guys, I know you guys both watched it. Yeah, of course you did. But it was very interesting knowing football and applying a football mindset to the stuff that he was talking about when he talked about group dynamics and how he rode people and that, that need for excellence. And it's very interesting kind of working through some of my own experiences in my head and applying that to what Jordan was saying about his teammates and some of the stuff that Jordan said about him. I, I found that, I found it fascinating, but purely more so from a technical point of view, rather than sheer enjoyment of sitting back and watching television. Would you, would you want him having, would you want him in your team? I know talent wise. Yep. yep. So you're willing to accept. That's a quick answer. It's a quick answer that. No, but I'm, I'm trying to think in terms of your values are a million miles away from what Michael Jordan's values are. Are you happy to put your values to one side for talent? Uh, my values will always be my values. That won't change. But that will really be more how I hold myself and how I can try and influence others to kind of follow my lead, if you like. With Jordan, he's never going to follow your lead. But I believe myself to be a good man, management, man manager. And I've always been able to get performance out of players who I've been told not to sign or don't work with. So... You know, the be all end all is that coaches need to win. We can sit here and talk about development all day long. And if you're a youth team coach, that's great. And, you know, three players make it to the first team. That's fantastic. Massive pat on the back. It's a great achievement. But unfortunately, the level I'm working at now, I have to win. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many players play for the national team. It doesn't matter what goes on. My job is about winning and losing. And my job is about 11 guys going out there and representing me to get that win. No one watches me work. No one watches my real influence on that team. They see the end product. They don't see my influence. They don't see me actually, you know, physically working with those players. So to have someone like Jordan, that's like turning down Messi on your team. I mean, all right, a different view, view set. You'd want the best player on your team. But that comes with a price in that you would have to find a way of working with that. You would have to find a way of working with players and, and building a structure, building a context where everybody understands he's the best player. There's no way around that. And very much like Phil Jackson did. There was no hiding Michael Jackson's the best player on that team and that other players were playing a supporting role. But it's understanding that this is a team. It's not just Michael Jordan. And if we can all play our part in, you know, giving the ball to Michael Jordan and he scores, well, he doesn't get that ball if Rodman doesn't make the rebound. So, you know, and Jordan's asking for Rodman to get on the team. He knows he can't do it on his own. So if we can enthuse others, if we can put power into people that understand each other's roles in this, in this team setting, I'd be confident I could handle that personality and because there'd be no ego from my side I'd let his ego run wild that's fine but there wouldn't be any ego from me we wouldn't clash okay that's an interesting way of looking at it it's not very Phil Jackson was unbelievable weren't he in where he handled Rodman yeah. and all and, and you look at Steve Kerr I love Steve Kerr from from a human perspective of bit part player did his thing and then he actually then went on and became a, an unbelievable coach probably using his experiences and yeah, that, that, that for me is the big winner out of him and Phil Jackson from that show. They, they really stand out for me. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, I think the viewpoint that the three of us would be looking at it from is very different from the viewpoint that your average viewer would be looking at. 
You know, yeah. I, I remember I was in the States at the time when Jordan, you know, was up, it was in two of his finals in 96 and 97. And I remember the, the hype and the games and the chaos that was surrounding it. I remember it all. Um, but now I'm looking at it from a very different viewpoint. I remember him taking those last minute shots. Um, so it's, it's interesting being, being where I am now and looking at things slightly different from, from when I did when I was younger. All right, so Jordan, then who's your other two? Oh, you're hammering me on this, aren't you? I've been trying to talk enough so you forget the question. Um, that's, that's my wife, by the way. Just, just hey, hi, into... Sarah. <laughs> this is being recorded. No, it's fine. I'm sure your ass will go down very well. Sorry about that, gents. I can only apologise. Anyway, it gets me out of that question. Uh, no, no, you're done. Two more. Jordan, I'd go for Jordan. I'd go for... You know who I find quite interesting, again, because of a Netflix program, is uh, Horner from the Red Bull Racing Team. Yes. That's a good very interesting, very interesting individual. Jerry Arrowell. Yeah, talks about development a lot, talks about giving young guys an opportunity, but is absolutely ruthless when it comes to cutting contracts. You know, there's a line. You get to that line, you don't perform, done, move on, next. Yeah. He'd be quite an interesting person to have to throw probably some quite... Uh, ruthless viewpoints around the table and, and create conversation. Yeah. One more, mate. Um, one more. Um, God, let me think of one more. I'm trying to get my head out of Netflix as well. <laughs> um, maybe someone like, oh, maybe someone like Bobby Charlton. Because, and I say Bobby, I know it's back in football and it's a bit of a cop-out, but Bobby Charlton has seen so much development within football. You know, he's, he's still right up there in Man United. He's seen Man United peak and drop. He was back then when he was one of the best players. He's been through the rebuilding of a team. He's lost teammates, how to deal with... There are so many experiences that he's had as an individual that I think would be really fascinating to have and talk through in conversation. Yeah, fair yeah. play. Last one, Lewis, yeah? Should we do the legacy one? It's quite fitting with the yeah. last dance. <sighs> Do you, do you believe in, in leaving a legacy? Does it matter to you? Um, define, you're going to have to define legacy. Well, that's for you to define, mate. What do you, what do you think leaving a legacy is? Um, I believe as a coach, you don't necessarily travel and leave legacies behind. I think you travel with a reputation. And that's really the only thing that I move from club to club with. I have my CV, that says one thing, but my reputation, I hope, says another. And, and how I see the game, play the game and get my players to play the game is really what I carry from job to job. Because no doubt if I sign for a club in Malaysia, they'll phone the club in Indonesia. What was Simon like? They'll speak to players that have worked with me. And the greatest, I think the greatest pat on the back you can give yourself is when players that you've worked with turn around and say, one of the best coaches I've worked with. It doesn't matter about results because results will come and go. You'll win, you'll lose. Nobody wins everything. Um, and, you know, you, you, the more you lose, the more you realise it's not the end of the world. You can find a way through it. There's always, you know, a, one door closes, another door opens, that classic old saying. But the only thing that is really kind of constant is, that, is what people say about you and that reputation you take forward. And if you are a leader of people, if you are, you see, you see yourself as someone who is a leader, a role model, someone who wants to influence, that is so crucial going from job to job. And, and when people that you have led turn around and say, I'd follow him again, I'd go to a club he's at, yeah. 
And I think there's only two players in the last 10 years I've ever worked with that would turn around and say, no, I wouldn't work with Simon again. Despite all of the slating that I get on social media, media recently from the Indonesian national team, if you talk to the players themselves, would they want me back as national team? I, I would, I bet my house they would, purely because of the relationships I built with them and, and the respect that we had for each other. So I take that as the, as the highest uh, form of praise that, that I can as a, as a coach. Bosses will always have another reason. Fans will always have another reason. But players are the ones that are there doing it. They know the stories. They know what you went through. They know what you did. And if they still speak highly of you at the end of the day, no matter of the results, then you've got to be happy with that. And you've got to take that forward because that might very well get you that next job. There you go. That reputation follows you around. Be a good person. Make people yeah. better. Love it. Thanks, Simon. Really enjoyed the chat. Very, very Thanks, welcome, Simon. guys. Appreciate that. No problem.